The scripture reading for today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, and you can find that on page 954 of those Blue Pew Bibles. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more so, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother? and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Delaney and Tim, thank you guys so much for leading us in worship. We really appreciate that and singing and, and music, rather. Um, before we get into this text, let's pray one more time. Father in heaven, uh, we praise you as Ruth said and as Ruth read out of Psalm 75. We praise you that you are a God, you are the God who will judge with equity in the earth. We praise you that you have made um, your will known in so many ways. We praise you for the Ten Commandments. We praise you um, for the greatest commandments that you have given, that we ought to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We praise you that you sent Jesus so that we might know what it means to live as you have called us to live as your image bearers, women and men created in your image. Father, we praise you that you have revealed so much to us. And we praise you um, that you are a God who will judge with equity the earth. Father, we do confess together, as has already been confessed, that when we look into this earth, um, to judge the earth is so filled with such complications. And um, we see in our hearts immediately our own hypocrisy. Um, Father, even as we look at a list like the Apostle Paul gathers here before the Corinthians, um, we see that like the Corinthians, we are those who want to get ours now. And we are blind uh, in so many ways to oppression and to offense, uh, to sinning against you and against one another. And Father, we praise you that even as we read last week, it is clear that you are going to judge the world. Father, um, we do praise you 
that you have called us to be a part of that in the end. Uh, that you have called us to say to your judgment, amen and amen. It is true. It is true. And Father, in so doing, uh, to judge alongside of you, alongside of your son Jesus, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, who will come again to judge the living and the dead. Father, we confess that we're uncomfortable talking about judgment, even judgment within the church. And yet since last week, we have been struggling with this idea of saying, how do we judge rightly in the church? How do we seek to purge evil from the church, even as it has been said in Corinthians? So, Father, we come before you um, and we thank you for your word, not because it's easy, but because sometimes it's very, very clear even as it's clear in this text today. And we ask you, Father, would you help us to see clearly so that we might be women and men created in your image who are quick to repent, that we would remember that we, um, we are those who were described by such traits as are mentioned here, um, but that's not who we are anymore because of what Jesus has done. Lord Jesus, I pray that the gospel would be clear today to us, that we would feed off of it, even as we hear it, that you would lead us together to bow our heads and to repent and to breathe and to know that forgiveness is real. Father, we remember how you revealed yourself to Moses and how you said that you are a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, defining that steadfast love as forgiving the iniquity and the sin and the transgression of thousands of generations. Father, that you are a God of justice. You said you will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. But your justice in compared to your forgiveness um, is just amazing by your own admission, by your own definition. And so, Father, I pray that to a woman and to a man here, as we are convicted of our sin, would we sit in your forgiveness, knowing that you know us? And would your forgiveness soften our hearts? Father, would you cause this to pass? Father, we thank you so much for the gifts that you have given your church. Father, we thank you for the women and the men that you have joined together here, and we celebrate with Nathan and Rachel the birth of Lewis Bear Glenister. And Father, we pray uh, for Conrad and for Amory that they would love their brother. Father, we join our voices together even as we prayed last week, asking that there would not be a day when Lewis is not aware of your love for him. Would every day his awareness of your love grow clearer and clearer and sharper and sharper? And would we look with great expectation to that day when he will profess his faith in you and be admitted to this table? Father, we pray that you would encourage Rachel and Nathan. We pray that you would strengthen them to the task of parenting. And we ask that you would help us as a church, to whom you have given this little one, that we would join them in the nurture, in raising him up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Father, we ask that you would work in our hearts. We come before you as your people. And yet with a text like this, 
we are so deeply challenged that we ask that you would strengthen us, that we would be led to worship Jesus in these next few minutes. And as we would come to the table and be fed by you at this table, that our strength would be, our faith would be strengthened and that we would be quick to repent and that we would be quick to obey. Father, we ask even now as we look at your word that the foolishness of preaching would again accomplish the purpose for why you have called it to be, that the name of Jesus would be clear and that we would become more and more like Christ, that we would seek your glory and that you would bless us for our good according to your promises. Father, I thank you that you know each of the hearts that's gathered here. You know why we need to be here. You know how you're going to speak to us. Father, you are in no way distracted by change of location and temperature, by, by days that seem to bleed one into another, by suffering, even by joy. You are not distracted. But your intention has always been, as you have made it out to be, that you are making everything new. And so, Father, please... Help us to believe that. Help us to invest our lives yet again. Thank you for the way that you pursue us. Father, we ask that now you would speak to us. Now you would lead us by your word. We praise you that you are our good shepherd. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray all these things. Amen. Well, I've really enjoyed uh, Corinthians so far. I won't lie to you, it's been super challenging. And today's text is no less challenging, right? I want to encourage you to open up the Bibles that you see in the book, on the chairs in front of you to 954. And I want you to open up to chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. And I want you to think with me about what the Apostle Paul is doing, all right? I want to encourage you to understand that what the Apostle Paul is doing is he is calling the Corinthians to refocus their attention. I think that this passage has to do with the Apostle Paul's focus for the Corinthians. He shows the Corinthians their focus for themselves. And then ultimately, we end up with Christ's focus for us. Listen, this book of 1 Corinthians is in the Bible. It has been in there for thousands of years now. And I really do believe that this is the inerrant word of God that's meant to encourage us in our faith. And maybe even today for us here at CTK Newton to have a bit of a wake-up call, to ask the question, uh, where is our focus? So the first thing that I want you to see in verses 1 through 6 is that the Apostle Paul is challenging the Corinthian Christians to focus on reality, okay? I put a very pithy, quick quote in the very beginning of the order of worship. It simply says this, Christians are eschatological people. And I know that you read that, and as soon as you saw the word eschatological, you said, I'm out, I don't understand. Hopefully I can sing. I'm so glad that the, those who sing in front of us have beautiful voices, because that'll lead me to worship. But the Apostle Paul wants us to understand that believers are eschatological people. We are people whose focus, attention, and motivation are supposed to be on the end. 
And by the end, I mean the goal of the whole story of Christianity, the goal of our lives, the inevitable conclusion of this life, which is glorifying God and enjoying him forever. When the Apostle Paul speaks to the Corinthians, he is constantly reminding them that this end has already begun. Right. He says that with Jesus in his resurrection, the end of all things has already started the firstborn from among the dead. And this is going to be the end of our lives in every way. The focus, the attention, that which motivates us. This is what the Apostle Paul means when he challenges them in those first few verses about them taking lawsuits to secular courts when they're suing one another as believers in the body, right? This is what he's saying when he's saying, don't you understand that in the end, you're going to judge the earth? Now, where does he get that idea? That idea comes out of Daniel 7, out of the vision that Daniel gives. So as a Jewish man, the Apostle Paul would have been you know, washed in the reality that God's people are going to be participating in the judgment of the world. Do I know what that means? I do not know what that means. Do I know how that's going to happen? I do not know how. What I know is that over and over in Scripture, we are told that the saints of God will stand before Him and say, Amen, Amen to every truth that He gives. Did you know that when you say Amen, you are pronouncing judgment? Did you know that? How many times in our order of worship today have we already said amen? You see this idea of pronouncing judgment that is the end and the goal, according to the Apostle Paul, as eschatological people of God, we are saying it is true. It is true. That's what amen means. That is pronouncing a judgment. When you listen to something that's stated and you go, that is not true, you don't say amen. When you say amen, you are saying that is true. Even if it's just the pronouncement of our amen, the Apostle Paul is saying, look, you are depending on secular courts to judge between two believers. He says, don't you understand who you are? He has for the Corinthian believers and thus challenges us a focus on the end, the inevitable conclusion of all of life that has started already in the resurrection of Jesus. The Apostle Paul is challenging the, Christian, the Corinthian Christians' focus by saying, look, I'm focusing on who you are. You're able to judge the, you're gonna judge the world. He says, you're gonna judge angels, and yet you take your disputes to civil court. You sue one another in civil court. What is going on? He says, this is shameful. Listen, is it important that we have focus in our lives? Different foci, I do know the plural, but it's much easier to say focuses. Different foci of our lives, the things that we focus on, will result in different priorities or at least in a different ordering of those priorities, won't it? Let me read these few priorities for you that are priorities in my life. I tried to think about my life, tried to think about yours. Work, right? That's a priority. Health, family, church and worship, relationships, experiences, education, evangelism. I, you know, I tried to not give you too many, but you might have other priorities that you have in your life. 
And now the things that you focus on, that which you focus on is going to change the order of those priorities, isn't it? I wish that I had a screen because I'd put them up in front of you so that you could see them. And then I could ask you very quickly with some device, would you put these in order? If you were focused on this life and this life alone, how would you prioritize those items? Work, health, family, church, worship, relationship, experience, education, evangelism. One way of determining our prioritization is how much time in our lives do we give to each, right? And if we're focusing on this life only, there's going to be an order to those priorities. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Let me ask you this. What if you focus on death? Hmm. What if you focus on death? I'm telling you right now, if you were to tell me that I am going to die in six months, if you were to give me a, um, uh, that uh, pronouncement of my life, I think that I would look at the order of those things that I'm focusing on, and I think that they would probably change, if I'm honest with you. Now that I'm a, you know, a newly minted grand, granddad, I would probably try to get as close to that kid as I could for the longest that I could, knowing that I've got six months to go, right? What do we say about death? That death puts things into focus, right? This changes priorities. But the Apostle Paul is saying, I don't want you to focus on this life. I don't want you to focus on death. I want you to focus on the end who you are and who you are becoming because of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. I want you to focus on the end to which all of life is marching. See, the Bible is very clear about where this ends. This ends in Jesus's return and the judgment of the living and the dead. This ends, according to the Apostle Paul, to these Corinthians here with the church participating in that judgment in some way that makes sense, even if it's just us saying amen to God's judgment. What you judge is true. Amen. That's our participation. And that's already started with Jesus' resurrection. As he is alive and active in each of one of us, joining us together, we are the temple where the Holy Spirit dwells among us. And the Apostle Paul in chapter 5 called us to judge one another, didn't he? That that judgment ought to be happening within the body of Christ. In fact, he challenges and he says, look, I'm not talking about you judging the world right now. I'm talking about you judging each other. God's going to judge the world. Now he says, look, we'll participate in that. But I'm talking about the judgment within the church, the Apostle Paul says. And the Apostle Paul, this is a reality for him and a reality for the Corinthians and a reality for his church. But the Apostle Paul reveals in these verses that it's not a reality for the Corinthians. That's the second thing that I want you to see is that the Corinthians focus. Listen to what he says to them after he says, why is it? Why do you go, in verse 4, so, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? And then he says something that he said opposite way in chapter 5. He says, I say this to your shame. Do you remember in chapter 5 he said, I'm not trying to shame you, but I am trying to get you to change. But here he says, I'm pointing this out because this is shameful in you, Corinthians. 
Can it be that there is no one wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Now, you know that when the Apostle Paul asked them that question, that provocative question about wisdom, you know that from the beginning of chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians think that they're wise and that Paul is foolish. And Paul is pushing that button for the Corinthians. He goes, can it be that there's no one wise enough among you to make this determination? And then he says this in verse 6, but brother goes to brother, brother goes to the law against brother, and that before unbelievers. He says, this is not the way you think about your lives. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong in defraud, even your own brothers. What is the Apostle Paul saying about their focus? He is saying that the Corinthians' focus is not on the end, not on the, the goal of all of Scripture, not on the end of the whole story of Scripture, the inevitable conclusion of Christ's return and the church gathered and the judgment of the living and the dead. He is saying, look, instead of doing what you're doing, wouldn't it be better if you suffered wrong at one another's hands? If you were allowed one another even to defraud each other? But he says, but instead of doing that in verse eight, he says, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers and sisters. He makes it very clear to the Christians in a very provocative way to the Corinthians that your focus is not on the end. Rather, your focus is on this. I am going to get mine. In this life, I'm going to get mine. The sorrow that you've experienced, the suffering that the Corinthians experienced, the, the joy that they experienced, all of that, they have concluded, I'm going to get mine. If someone has wronged me or defrauded me, I'm taking them to court because I'm going to get mine. And the Apostle Paul goes, wouldn't it be better? Because in the end, God is going to judge everything and you're going to participate in that judgment to be wronged by someone? But no, instead of that, you go and you wrong others. That word for wronging is acting toward others with unrighteousness. That's what that word means. So every time it says wrong or wronging or unrighteous, that's the same word in this whole 11 verses. And the Apostle Paul is saying, unlike my focus for you guys, which is that you are somebody because of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, that my focus is on who you are in the end, the inevitable conclusion, your focus, Corinthians, is on getting what is yours now. I'm going to get mine. Why do I say that this might be a wake-up call for us? This might be a wake-up call depending on how startled you were when you heard the list of unrighteousness. It might be a wake-up call for us in the church to ask ourselves, how much have we imbibed that same idea of getting what is mine. I'm gonna get mine. I'm gonna orient my life around this life. 
Really, it's the same as orienting our lives around our death, isn't it? Because if we orient our lives around our death, it's another way of orienting our lives around this life. We create a bucket list. We, we create experiences. We say we've got to have this before we get there. But to orient our lives around this eschatological end, this end of all times, this inevitable conclusion that is coming means that we think about our death differently, doesn't it? I talked to somebody this week who is so afraid that they have pancreatic cancer. And at this point in their lives, pancreatic cancer would not go well. And this individual asked me, how do I wrap my head around this? And I was like, we need to talk more and more about eternity. We need to talk more and more about the end of all things. We need to talk more and more about the inevitable conclusion of the story of the scriptures, because that needs to impact the way that we think. Paul's focus is that the believers are an eschatological people, but the Corinthians' focus is I'm going to get mine. And Paul makes it clear in verses seven and eight that that's what they're going after. Paul then asks some pretty strong warnings in verses nine and 10, doesn't he? The Apostle Paul continues to ask questions. It's a rhetorical device. Do you remember that they had judged the Apostle Paul on his ability to, um, to have strong rhetoric? Recognize that in this passage, the Apostle Paul is pouring it on. His intensity to the Corinthian Christians is in full force with these questions after questions after questions. Because you know that when someone asks you a question, you are supposed to give an answer. You are engaged. And the Apostle Paul gives them another question that along with it is a strong warning. And it's really interesting. He starts off verse 9. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous... Now, I want you to stop right there and look. I don't know if your Bible has notes in it or not, but this one does, and it has a little five next to the unrighteous. And if you go down and if you look at what it says uh, uh, in the bottom of the text, it says, but do you not know that the wrongdoer, do you see that? So the Apostle Paul is connecting verses seven and eight to verse nine. He's saying, wouldn't it be better if you were wronged or defrauded? But no, rather you choose to wrong and to defraud. You are saying you're going to get your own. I'm going to get mine. And then he says, or do you not know? And he uses the same word. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he gives us the list. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What is he saying? He's saying when we are ordered against this reality in a wrong way, wrongly ordered against God's creation, 
In other words, we're saying, I'm going to get what's mine. Sounds a lot like our parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden, doesn't it? I'm going to get what's mine. This is the best way to do it, as opposed to believing God and what he has said is the best way to do it. We are rejecting God's way of life. That's what it means to be a wrongdoer. It means that we reject God's way of life. And instead, we say, we're going to do it our way. And the Apostle Paul goes, look, wrongdoers don't inherit the kingdom of God. This is a big deal, Corinthians, that you are oriented around getting your own. And again, I just ask you, is this something that we need to think about? Is this something that needs to settle deep into our hearts? Let's think about this list for a minute. These are all individuals who practice whatever this wrong orientation is. Those who practice of sexual immorality. You remember what sexual immorality is. Any form of sexual activity or aberration outside of marriage. That's, that's what sexual immorality is according and defined here by scripture. Anyone who practices sexual immorality or idolaters or adulterers, right? Or men who practice homosexuality. Thieves, the greedy, do you remember how we talked about the greedy last time? That even in a Greco-Roman world, taking what is not yours proportionally was really frowned upon even in a secular society. But here you're going to see that that's what the Corinthians are struggling with left, right, and center. I'm going to get what's mine. Drunkards, revilers, remember what revilers were? Those who, who heap scorn on others who are their enemies? Swindlers. These practitioners who have wrongly judged reality and the nature of gifts, determining for themselves how life ought to be led. What's the commonality in this whole list? The whole list is simply commonality of this. I'm going to get what's mine. I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to get what I prefer. I'm going to decide that what I'm doing is right. Listen, it makes sense that we think about this list in this concept of sex for a minute. And it's the first of two opportunities that we're going to get to do it. We're going to get to do it next week as well as we hear the Apostle Paul say, flee sexual immorality. But he uses sex here as a great example, wrongly judging what sex is. Sex as consumption versus sex as a gift. Listen, the Corinthian culture was known for its open sexuality in every way. There's this one quote that is in all the commentaries, and it essentially says this, that wives were meant for legitimate children, and specifically legitimate sons, that mistresses were meant for pleasure, and that slaves were meant for bodily care. That that's how they viewed sexuality. And that's how they viewed the practice of sex, complete and utter freedom and using anyone that you want to be satisfied. Our culture is so much more advanced, isn't it, <laughs> in the way that we think about sex and sexuality. In our modern culture, what have we done? Well, it seems to me that we have sought to remove responsibility regarding sex left, right, and center. Right? You can look at something as simple as no-fault divorce. And you can say, you know, we really don't believe that the two have become one. They, folks can get divorced whenever they want to. This idea that birth control is just the absolute norm. 
We don't really have to consider that sex has to do with new life. And then we have elevated sex, the practice of sex and the expression of sexuality to be everything in our lives. You notice how he said sexual immorality and idolatry. That's what idolatry is in that list. This idea that it is everything in our lives. And when we take this idea that sex is defined by our consumption of it, because that's what our culture has done, when we take this idea that sex is defined by our consumption of it, and we accept that, we can't judge someone else's sexual desire. How many of us read this list and we read adultery, and then men who practice homosexuality, and we go, wait a minute, we've been taught that we can't judge anyone else's sexual desire or sexual practice. But you guys, the reason why is because we have received from our culture that sex is about consumption, and I'm gonna get what's mine. And how I want that is up to me and not up to you to speak into. But the Apostle Paul says, no church, That is not true. Our culture, the culture of the world in which we live, our culture is just like the Corinthian culture, isn't it? But the Apostle Paul is saying, look, church, not so your culture in the church. That's not how we are to be focused. I'm going to get what's mine. Our focus is supposed to be on the end of all of this, the goal of all of this, the inevitable conclusion of Jesus Christ in his return. And to recognize that therefore sex is not about consumption, but it's about a gift that bears responsibility and one that God has a right to teach us how we ought to think and consider it. One of the things that the Apostle Paul says is he says, we're defeated already because you have taken your lawsuits to the courts and you have said that you're gonna get mine. When when two believers go, I'm gonna get mine, I'm gonna do it my way, the Apostle Paul says we're defeated already. But one of the things that he's saying we're defeated about, he says it in verse one, in verse four, in verse six, is he's saying you're doing this in front of unbelievers. And what is he saying? He's saying the church is the one place that God has given to this world to live out a different view of human sex and sexuality. And yet the church, Corinthians, you're defeated already. And so he warns them as sternly as he can warn them. Verse nine again, or do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Church, I wanna ask us a question. Does the church offer another way of talking about sex and sexuality? Do we offer another way? Junior and senior high students, do you have a different way about thinking about sex and sexuality than your friends at school? Have you bought into the idea that it's simply about consumption? Or do you believe that there is a gift that has been given that bears great responsibility? Are we, 
church, are we. Don't think about them. Think about us. Are we repenting of our practicing of sexual immorality? Remember, Jesus said, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if anyone looks at a woman with lust in her eyes, in his eyes, he's already committed adultery in his heart. Church, are we taking seriously our own repentance that we need to be called to with sexual immorality? And are we teaching a different narrative to each other? I'm not talking about just to our children. I'm talking to, about to one another. Are we reminding each other of the truth? Are we calling each other to repentance when, when we're practicing theft and practicing greed and practicing swindling or reviling? Are we calling each other to repentance? Are we seeking to purge evil among us? See, purging evil among us isn't the desired end of just getting somebody to leave. It's begging that we would stay and become more like Jesus. It's pleading with one another. Or church, have we just accepted sex as consumption and we've just chosen to exclude some? Corinthians is a wake-up call for us. Verses 10 and 11 end with Christ's focus. Because Jesus is also focused on the end. He's also focused on the goal. He's also focused on the inevitable conclusion of the story of the Bible. He is focused on glorifying God and reconciling sinners to him. What is Jesus focused on? He's focusing on God and on us. He said that my food is to do the will of the Father in heaven, that I've come that you would know the love of God, that he came to call sinners to repent like you and me, us to repent, right? The Apostle Paul writes in 10 and 11, or excuse me, in 11 and 12, after this list, listen to the list one more time, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, look at it, it's important. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What is the message that the Apostle Paul is telling us here? The message is not that the kingdom of God is closed to people with these traits. Rather, the message of the Apostle Paul is saying, this is who you, church, were. This is who you were. How does he say it in another place? He says this, when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, we were made alive by Christ. The kingdom of God, you guys, and this is important for us to believe, 
The kingdom of God is made up of all types of past sinners. Defined by this list. Why is this important? Because then you find yourself in this list. And you know what Nathan says all the time? The more things that we can call sin, the better. Why? Because that's more things that are going to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. He's making everything new. And so we find ourselves there. The Apostle Paul is saying, this is who you were. But that's not the only thing he's saying. Look at verse 11. It is not who we are now. Listen, he is essentially saying, your focus is not, I'm going to get mine. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it the way that I judge the world to be done. I am getting mine. But rather that is replaced with this profession. I am united with Christ. What does he say? You have been washed You've been sanctified, which means set apart, and you've been justified by Christ. You have made, been made rightly oriented toward God, rightly oriented toward him. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus did this for us while we were focused on getting our own. You guys... The Apostle Paul gives the Corinthians this stern warning, and it's a wake-up call for us to ask us, what are we focused on, church? Are we focused on this life? Are we focused on a fear of death? Or are we focused on the inevitable end? Because it will change the way we act now. Don't worry if you go, man, I don't know if I can even begin to conceive of a world in which sex is considered gift versus consumption. Like, how is that? We're going to talk about it again next week. But I want to ask you, does this narrative of the gospel, of God saving sinners when sinners are dead in their transgressions, God saving you and me when we were unrighteous, does that narrative move you at all to thanksgiving, move you at all to longing to obey him. What was the song that was sung for our offertory? I will leave this road for the narrow. I will leave the road that says I'm going to get mine for the narrow road that says I am going to be focused on that end and glorify God in my body as much as the worship. And see, then the church is different. Then the church is the light and salt that we are called to be. Then the church is moved to repentance and faith. Where does that renewal continue to happen? Here at this table. Listen, I believe that this concept is completely upside down. One of my friends named Stephen Graham, who many of you know, was a seal for good night, at least 10 years, maybe even a dozen years. And he told me that in one of his trainings, he was taken to the bottom of a pool and he was twisted upside down and all around and all of his scuba gear was tied in knots and he was discombobulated and blinded and, and he had to figure out, how do I understand myself in this upside down world? 
I want you to think that the way we as a church are supposed to understand ourselves in this world is equally discombobulating when you compare it to the way the world tells us to think, I'm going to get mine. But it is the reality to which we were made. And it's the reality and the focus to which the Apostle Paul is calling us toward. And it is toward that reality that invites us to repent for not being focused on the inevitable end. And that changes us as we see that Jesus has always been focused that way. We're going to talk one more time about sexual immorality in this section. But thank goodness for the Corinthians, they were dealing with it a lot too, because we have to deal with it a lot too in our own lives. But let's prepare our hearts as we come to this table by praying. Let's pray.